This morning, we are, of course, back in Romans chapter 8, the greatest chapter in all the Bible. I'd like to just begin today by reading from the text, Romans 8. I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. May God bless his word to our entire church here this morning. We continue in this treasure trove of Romans chapter 8, a chapter that begins with the statement that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It ends with there is uh, no possible separation from the love of God for those that are in Christ Jesus. And in between those wonderful statements, we have all kinds of teaching about the Holy Spirit. And there is one word that dominates Romans 8. And it's a little word. It's the little word in. What is today's message about? It's about the word in. In a sense, I can say that. Let's talk about this word. And I, you know, as a father of young daughters, I, I often hear from them, you know, Daddy, what does this mean? Or what does this word mean? And it's, it's interesting to hear that if you're not around that because you, we take language so for granted. You know, it's... What is language? It's, it's the assigning of sounds to various meanings and concepts that over time we just get accustomed to. Like I'm talking right now, I'm not thinking about talking, I'm just talking. You do the same. Uh, but to see children learning the language and learning this sound goes with this meaning, and then further, when that sound is given symbol and we write it down, it is really a miracle, is it not, that we can communicate in this way and my words go into your ears and into your brain in a way that hopefully you know what I'm saying or at least some of what I'm saying and you understand the concept. This is the miracle that is language, which brings us back to this little word in. In is a preposition and Romans loves prepositions. And there are, there's probably... Uh, no more important, or they're more important in Romans than any other book of the Bible. And at the head of the list of prepositions in Romans is this little word, in. Now you might say, well, how important can two little, word, two little letters be? I-N. Well, very important in ways that I hope that you realize today when I'm done. What is in? In is the opposite of out. So maybe you don't know what in means, but if you know what out means, think of the opposite of what out means. Okay. In, we say it this way, you're either in or you're out. My family enjoys Shark Tank. They have this little scripty saying that the investors say when they've decided they're not going to invest in the company, they say this, and for that reason, I'm out. What does that mean? I'm no longer in this. I'm no longer bidding on this. I'm no longer in the game. 
I'm not associated with this endeavor. I am out. In is the opposite of out. Now, we can be in, for example, geographically. Okay, geographically in. For one example, our home state begins with the word in. Now, I have a personal theory about how our state got its name. I think that the name of the state was actually supposed to be Diana. <laughs> and before it was made official, somebody, somebody asked, where are we? And the individual said, we're in Diana. And before you knew it, they wrote it down, and that's what the state's name became. Now, you're not going to read that in the history books. You heard it from me first. <laughs> in Diana. Now, if you drive a mile, uh, a mi- or a mile an hour north, uh, uh, avoiding the lake, you're going to be in Michigan. You go to the west, you're going to be in Illinois. So we're, we, we get in in terms of like spheres of geography. We understand that we are in this place or in that place. We have state lines and we have city limits and we get geographical in and, and out. This becomes critical in understanding the Bible and understanding how God saves sinners because God views all humanity in terms of in and out, in terms of spheres of salvation within which there are certain things that are true for you and certain things that are no longer true for you. Vis-a-vis on the other side of the sphere, there are things now that are true for you in this sphere and some things that are not true for you. We saw this in last week's uh, verses 3 through 8. The flesh-led life, the sphere of the flesh and sin, is outside of God's blessings. And sin takes us further and further away from Indiana. Sin takes us to Illinois. (laughs) Now, that wasn't in the notes. just came to me. Sin takes us away from God, such that, the passage says, that our minds are hostile to God. Our hearts are not for God and the things of God, the purposes of God in our life. But the inward motivation of the Christian, as we saw last week, is very different because in us is the Holy Spirit. And verses 9 through 11 expand on what is this Spirit-led life? What is the Spirit-led life? And we see in verse 9, it means that God dwells in us. Now just take a moment and act like you never heard that before. That Almighty God dwells within the sphere of the individual and places us in the sphere of salvation. Look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh. You see that. But you are in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so he's developing still this this contrast between those that are in the flesh and those that are in the Spirit. And here is where I need you to hang with me, okay? Hang with me here. To be in the Spirit is the result of the Spirit being in us. And the Spirit is in us as a result of us being in Christ. Did you follow me? Okay. Let me just say that again. To be in the Spirit is the result of the Spirit being in us. And the Spirit is in us as a result of us being in 
Christ. Okay, so you hear all these ins, don't you? And that's what I'm getting at here. In, in, in. Now, also this passage, and I just have to highlight this while we're here, it displays the Trinity in, it's one of the most clearly Trinitarian passages in all of the Bible. Look at what, what the names of the Spirit of, uh, of the Holy Spirit are. Verse 9, he's called the Spirit of God. In verse 9, he's also called the Spirit of Christ. In verse 9 and in verse 10, he's called the Spirit. In verse 11, he's called the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, which is the Heavenly Father. So in one text, you have him called the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, and the Spirit of the Father. And we see in this this incredible unity of the Trinity, where they are indeed one, and yet they are distinct, okay? Don't, don't take this in the way that some people do, where they collapse this all and say, well, there's just one. If he's the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of the Father and the Holy Spirit, it means there's just like one God. That's the ancient heresy of modalism, which just says that, you know, uh, the Father is Jesus, Jesus is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is Jesus. There's just Jesus. There's just one God. And there are many people that, uh, that believe that, churches in, in our area that preach that and, and believe that. No, no. How is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Father, and the Spirit of Christ, and himself an individual? And I got thinking about this, and just a, and this is an inadequate illustration, as all are when you try to explain the Trinity. But imagine uh, three triplets, three girl triplets. Not three triplets, one triplet, set of triplets. Because that technically would be nine, would it not? Okay, so one set of triplets, three sisters, let's just say uh, that their names are Marsha, Jan, and Cindy, just to pick three at random. Okay. So genetically, they are exactly the same, yet they are three distinct people. So that Cindy is simultaneously her own person, yet genetically the same as her two sisters, so much so that you would call Cindy the sister of Marcia, and yet, and also the sister of Jan. And within the Trinity, there is such a unity that they are all co-equal. They, are all, they all share the divine nature. And yet, they are distinct in a way that you can call the Holy Spirit simultaneously the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son and himself be his own unique individual. And that is a mystery, but that's the biblical witness. And we are a solidly Trinitarian loving church for so many reasons that I don't have time to get into right now. But what a beautiful passage this is unveiling some of the mystery that is the Trinitarian God that we worship. Amen? Okay. But the point in verse 9 is that God dwells in us. So much so that if we are in Christ... It means that Christ is in us by the Holy Spirit. And that's the exciting truth in verse 8. If you're in Christ, the Spirit is in you. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, does not belong to Christ. Okay, so us in Christ is eternally wonderful, as verse 1 of this chapter says, because we are under no condemnation. 
But the Spirit in us is just as wonderful. And this is something I'm convinced, myself, many other Christians, I don't think about it this way. Like, I I don't live the Christian life with a daily awareness that God is in me by the Holy Spirit. And this is, by the way, called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about indwelling sin in Romans 7, okay? Do not confuse that with indwelling spirit because these are two very different things, both speaking to the fact that within me I have indwelling sin, the old man, the old nature, the old enemy within me. But as a Christian, I have indwelling spirit within me. And that term, that theological term, is drawn from verse 8. If, in fact, the spirit dwells in you. You see that word? It's used again in verse 11, dwell. Okay, so to dwell somewhere is different than visiting somewhere. One is a hotel, one is a home. One is a temporary residence, but to dwell is a permanent residence. And that is the sense of it here. I think many Christians view the Holy Spirit's presence like we're his bed and breakfast. We talk about the Holy Spirit like, wow, the Spirit, it just, it came upon me. Or I could tell the Spirit of God was in the place. Or we associate the Holy Spirit with like those unique mountaintop experiences. Like I was really moved by the Spirit. The Spirit came upon me in some way. As if he's not there all the time. And what I want you to see here is that he is dwelling in us all the time. He is not an overnight guest. He doesn't just show up when you go to church. He is dwelling within his people all the time. The beloved resident who brings life and peace to the home of our heart. And that is why one author entitled this, and I took the the sermon title from it because it's so good. What is the Holy Spirit? All of God in all of me. All of God. Think of that. The, 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 the majesty and the, the, the size, the scope of God dwelling in me. Now that is not to say that all that God is in his fullness is in me any more than, than me. You know, if I, if I get a little, a little cup of Lake Michigan water, do I say I've got all of Lake Michigan in this cup? No. But I'm filled with Lake Michigan in this cup. It is truly Lake Michigan And within you, you have, Christian, the Spirit of God dwelling. The word there is for dwell or home, making his home within you. And he is there all the time, 24-7, God in us. So much so, he says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you're not in Christ. And there is a clue, by the way, of how this happens in our life. Don't don't get the idea right now, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit comes into my life. No. You know what you need to pray? You need to pray that Christ comes into your life. You need to give your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And what happens instantly when you are in Christ is now the Spirit comes and dwells within you. It's automatic. It's like getting married. When I, get, when I got married, I didn't say to Jennifer after the ceremony, hey, by the way, I've got a little surprise for you. It's a little bonus. I'm going to welcome you into my home as well. <laughs> I'm here to tell you, you get married, 
there's a wife in the house. It just happens like, you know, they don't even ask permission. They just come. They just show up. <laughs> I'm going to change my driver's license address to yours now. Is that okay? She didn't even ask me if it was okay. <laughs> Indwelling is nothing less than God with us and God in us. All of who God is in terms of his power and his presence in all of me. And what a difference that makes. We, we make statements that I think are just untrue. Christians will say, I need more of God in my life. No, you got God in your life. God needs more of you. You don't need more of God. Because he is there dwelling within us all the time. Doing his good work in us. Well, like what? Why would I want to have God dwelling within me? It sounds scary. No, it's not. It's wonderful. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. It may be helpful in that if there, but if Christ is in you to see it, and this is faithful to the grammar, since Christ is in you. Because there are no non-indwelling spirit Christians running around the place. Like if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. They always go together. Although the body is dead, he says, and this word for dead, by the way, it's that word mortal. In fact, that's what he says in the next verse. Our, our bodies are mortal and subject to decay. Did you look in the mirror this morning? Such that, in a sense, we're dead right now, naturally speaking. Our bodies are going to die. It's kind of like on the playground. If the, if the bully on the playground says, you're dead, or you're dead meat, what does he mean by that? I'm going to get you. And death gets all of us. We are mortal. In a sense, we're dead already. But look at what the Spirit produces. He says here, life because of righteousness. And that life is spiritual life. It is also eternal life because of righteousness. And we've learned in Romans already what is righteousness. It is right standing before God. This is justification. This is that wonderful truth introduced in chapter 3 where God declares us righteous. Not because we are righteous. We're not righteous. We are sinners. And we all fall short of the glory of God. But in his mercy and in his grace and by virtue of what Jesus did on the cross for us, he declares us righteous and says, I'm going to treat you as righteous as Jesus forever. We have life because of that right standing before God. And the Spirit of God births this life within us. In a way, it's explaining what Jesus said to Nicodemus, the most famous verse in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. What Jesus didn't explain to Nicodemus was how that life is birthed in us. And that's what Romans 8 is explaining. How do we get this life? It comes to us by virtue of the Holy Spirit who is life, eternal, Dwelling within us such that our bodies, which are decaying ongoingly, can waste away. But inwardly, we are not dying. 
we are, we are, we're living forever. This is, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And that's just not for nursing home Christians. That's for every single Christian here. I pastored here a long time. I don't look like I used to. I pastored many of you for a long time. The men do not look like they used to. <laughs> what do you say to the individual who has cancer as a pastor? What do you whisper in their ear in the last days? Though outwardly wasting away, inwardly renewed day by day. To be a Christian is to be getting old on the outside and to be in the prime of life on the inside because the Spirit of God is there. He is eternal God and has birthed this life within us and it will go on forever. Now I want to, I want to dig a little on this and explain this because it's such a wonderful truth. When the Bible talks about time, it does not do it the way that, that we often do it. We, you know, we're on our clocks. We have calendars. We think of eras in terms of starting and stopping. So a million people gather in Times Square on New Year's Eve. Why do they go there? To celebrate the end of one year and the beginning of another, along with copious amounts of alcohol. That's why they gather there. And that's the way we typically think about things. The Bible does not view time in terms of seconds, minutes, and days. The Bible views time in terms of redemptive eras and what God is doing in that redemptive era. And specifically, eternity past, creation, fall, redemption through Jesus Christ, and final consummation. That is the hourglass of God in terms of time. And I have a graph here to explain what, what, is, what is he talking about here. And you'll notice that we have in creation, we could have put creation right here, we have this era of the kingdom of man, which someday is going to come to an end. Above this, we have the line of the kingdom of God, the future kingdom of God, and what we would describe as eternal life. And what we have to understand is that we are living in the time of overlapping eras, where we live in the kingdom of man, which is death and decay and funeral homes and cemeteries. But when Jesus came into this world, it was the very life of the future kingdom invading the present decaying world. And his resurrection, his ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost represents then an overlap of what, you want to know what the future is going to be like? You look at what's going on right here. You want to know what's going on right here? We know what this is like. We live in it all the time. We live in this time of the overlap. And to see the presence of God by the Spirit in this world as evidence that the kingdom of God has come. It's here already. Like the Back in Time movie trilogy. 
to give another analogy, which had things, you know, part of the intrigue of, of those movies was that they were using a time machine, a DeLorean, to bring things from the future and put them in the past. And so to see, you know, DeLoreans and hoverboards and, you know, more modern clothing and language set in the 1950s was like, you know, it just seemed so weird, didn't it? And yet it was intriguing. Something from the future in, in the past. Something from the future in the present and the now. And Jesus coming into this world was the invasion of the future kingdom of God in the present and the now. And that's why he said the kingdom of God is upon you. That was his teaching. The Holy Spirit being here right now we are living a life internally and spiritually, which is the life of the future kingdom in this present world that is decay and death. And we don't realize it till one millisecond after we die. And then all of a sudden, it unfolds before us. And we realize the glory and the wonder that is eternity. And eternal life. So we're living in this kind of redemptive time warp. And to understand the Holy Spirit indwelling believers is to understand what that means redemptively. That's why Pentecost was such a big deal. You remember in Acts 1 8, Jesus says to his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he encourages them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. What was Pentecost? It was, it was the Holy Spirit's Christmas. It's when now he comes, his person indwelling us through the gospel and in, and in the church, his coming. So what, what does this mean? It means that when a sinner turns in faith to Jesus Christ and trusts in him, there is now all of those redemptive benefits that come through justification and adoption and a host of other things. But at the same time, it means that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within. It is God in us. So the unbeliever is dying on the outside, and they're dying on the inside. The Christian is dying on the outside and is dancing on the inside. Or at least we should be. We should be dancing on the inside. We've got God in us. We have life in us. It's an experience of renewal, which I will tell you from my, my own life will ebb and flow. And a lot of that has to do with my own sort of yielding to the Holy Spirit, not grieving the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to get into all of that, but there are certainly ways that the blessing of the indwelling Holy Spirit can be increasingly experienced in our life through the means by which God has said this happens, including how God speaks by his spirit through the word of God and prayer and fellowship and service and so many other things where the, the Holy Spirit's influence and control of my life is increased. But it never means he's not there. He is always there. If I am a Christian, he is there to bless us and to resource us and to change us and to sanctify us and to prepare us for our eternal home by conforming us to the likeness of Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior. That's what God's doing in you, dear brother and sister. 
And it's good news. It's good news. If I am in Christ, the Spirit is in me. Verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So do you see the logic here? Verse 9 is the certainty of the Spirit in dwelling all Christians. Verse 10 is the present reality of having the Spirit's empowering presence. And now verse 11 looks to the future. Death is an end. Death is a separation. Remember, Jesus wept at Lazarus' grave. This is a corruption of God's plan for his image bearers. And we all weep at death's terrible effect. And here is where in, that little word, makes all the difference. The unbeliever is in the flesh. When they die, they die. The flesh is death. But the Christian is not in the flesh. The Christian is in Christ, which means the Holy Spirit is in us. And since the Holy Spirit is eternal God, that presence of the Spirit within me is God's guarantee, I'm going to live forever. Okay? I'm going to live forever. Not because of me, but because of the presence of the Spirit within me. 2 Corinthians 5, 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. A guarantee of what? Of what verse 11 says, that he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Again, what an encouragement. Again, will, will. This is a promise. The Spirit is in you. You're going to live forever. This is what you whisper in the ear of the loved one who is in Christ on their deathbed. Highlight this verse maybe and memorize it to bring it to your mind when you're the one facing death in that moment. It is a guarantee from God, and the Spirit's presence is that kind of down payment guarantee that God is going to do it. How can I know that he can? Well, he gave life to Jesus' body, right? He's done it before. He'll do it again. That's kind of the argument here. If he raised Jesus from the dead, he certainly can raise you from the dead. And by the way, you have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that God's going to raise you from the dead. So I wonder if you're getting this, okay? Here's the summary. If I am in Christ, the Spirit is in me. The result of having eternal God in me is... I am already now living in the realm of eternity. The future kingdom is in me now. All right, I've had these up here. You've been wondering, oh, he's going to get to it. Yes, I am, and here I am now. Who can tell me what these are? Russian dolls, okay. These are called Russian dolls. And uh, there are more of them than this. But the idea of Russian dolls is, if I take this one off, in fact, you can see that I was afraid this was going to happen. Okay. See, there's one inside the other, inside the other. You get it? Okay. My, my girls were fascinated by this, by the way. Okay. So Russian dolls. If there's anything that illustrates in, it's Russian dolls. Because there is a doll that's inside a doll that's inside a doll that's inside a doll. Okay. Now, so this 
goes in here, and this goes in here. Now here's the idea, as simple as I can, what this passage is saying. This is us right here, okay? To become a Christian means that I am in Christ. And union with Christ, what do we learn? What happened to Jesus happened to us. Because I'm in Christ, when he died on the cross, I died with him. When he was dead in the grave, in the eyes of God, I was there with him. When he stepped out of that grave to conquer death, I was with him. I am in Christ. All those amazing blessings that come by being in Christ by faith. Amen and amen. Love it. Okay. But now, here is the thing. When I am in Christ, what this text is saying is that the Holy Spirit is in me. And by virtue of me having the Holy Spirit within me, since he is eternal and he is in me, it means that I am eternal as well. This is eternal life. This is how God produces it. It is by the Holy Spirit. So let me just review again. Okay, here we go. Christian, this is you. By faith, you are in Christ. But because you are in Christ, it means that the Holy Spirit is in you. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you live forever. Okay? You live forever. So the question today is, are you in Christ? Don't pray, Holy Spirit, please be in me. That prayer is never answered in isolation. We have to first be in Christ for the Holy Spirit to be in us. Christ must be our Lord and Savior. And just to ask, is that who Jesus is to you? As you sit here today, would you say, my Savior is Jesus Christ. My God is the God of the Bible. My hope is in the promises of God. I trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. You say, well, why should I care? Because if you, do not, or if you are not in Christ, you do not have the Holy Spirit. And if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you do not have life. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son has not life. And so the key to having the Holy Spirit is not seeking to have the Holy Spirit. The key is having Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then to experience the blessing and the promise of the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling within you and creating life in you and beginning to shape uh, your life and your character and conforming you to the most wonderful person who has ever lived, Jesus. And all along the way in the ups and downs of life and all the trials and troubles to know that if I die on the way home today, I live forever because the Holy Spirit dwells in me. All of God in all of me. Amen. Amen. Amen.